Welcome to Modern Signed Books. If you're interested in what makes your favorite authors tick, then you'll love hearing what they have to say in our interviews. Learn how they got started writing, the books and authors that inspired them, and much more. Meet today's hottest authors as they discuss their lives and writing with art book specialist Roger Nichols. And don't forget to pick up a copy of your favorite books at bjbooks.com. Here's Roger. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Our guest today says he grew up in Southern California battling his brothers and sisters for respect and the best spot on the couch in front of the TV. Matt Coyle says he knew he wanted to be a writer when at age of 12, his father gave him The Simple Act of Murder by Raymond Chandler. He took that to heart, by golly, because his debut novel, Yesterday's Echo, won the Anthony Award for Best First Novel and a passel of other awards. His second and third novels featuring a former policeman and now private investigator Rick Cahill were also finalists for prestigious awards. And in just a few days, as we record this, the fourth Cahill book, Blood Truth, will be released. We're very pleased to welcome Matt Coyle. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You bet. You had some interesting jobs before you became a published author, including managing a restaurant, selling golf clubs for a decade, and working with sports memorabilia. So before we get into that, I want to ask, are you a good golfer? Uh, no. I'm, I, when I was in the business... I was, when I was in business, I was a little better, but uh, I actually haven't golfed in years. Unfortunately, my free time now, because I still am employed uh, outside writing, I need to pay the bills. So um, uh, my weekends and my afternoons, late afternoons are taken up with writing. But no, I was, uh, I think the best I ever got down to was maybe like about a 13 handicap. Oh, well, that's a lot better than a lot of us. <clears throat> I won't go into that. Uh, I will ask this too. When you, you mentioned sports memorabilia. What's the most interesting piece you ever dealt with? Well, actually what, uh, what we do is called sports collectibles. It's easily confusable. Um, it's really more like sports licensing. We, 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 I'm a uh, work for Rawlings sporting goods, Mm-hmm. Um, which anybody who played little league uh, <laughs> you you know, understands Rawlings sporting goods, but we were actually a different entity years ago. We've been bought by various other huge entities and we're now sistered with, um, Rawlings sporting goods and taking their name. But what we do is we produce, um, stuff that becomes memorabilia. It's say, uh, say a football, say the, uh, West coast team, the Raiders won another super bowl. That doesn't look very possible, but anyway, <laughs> we put out footballs that have like, uh, their team accomplishments on there. If they'd have super bowls, there would be super bowl, um, logos on the ball. And then people will buy those and go get them autographed by players. And then they become memorabilia. But we all, we sell the, you know, retail and huge change and online. Um, so no, I don't know anything about the memorabilia side. Unfortunately, it's probably a lot more exciting than what I do. Okay, well, well, this is why we find out stuff like this. I also want to ask about about managing a restaurant. Now, that involves dealing with big issues on one hand and a lot of small details on the other. It seems like some of that organizational experience would be helpful as an author. You would think so, but I'm very unorganized. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you pretty much hit the nails on the head. You are dealing with, uh, of course, a lot of, mostly when I was doing it, a lot of younger people and uh, – um, you know, problems that may arise there and maybe um, being uh, accountable. And then you're dealing with customers, of course, you're dealing with salespeople. And then the best, because I used to, uh, <laughs> the most interesting was dealing with musicians because the restaurant that I used to manage, Chuck Steakhouse in La Jolla, uh, we had jazz. Uh, it's been a long time. I think it was three, it was four nights a week, three or four nights a week we had jazz. Mm-hmm. And so nice. I, I used to book the 
book the jazz bands and they have they have a whole different idea of what time about they have their own <laughs> idea of what time is like so but but uh it was all fire i all enjoyed it but um you know it ran its course for me yeah well the nice thing about writing is the only person you have to manage is yourself and um that can be difficult times too but i understand that but uh, uh you're doing very yeah. well at it now in, in reading blood truth one of the first things i noticed other but a plot that sucked me in like an overpowered Hoover was it feels like an homage to Chandler and the others from the best of the noir subgenre. And it's not the vocabulary. You're not writing about dangerous dames with gorgeous gams and loaded gats. It's the rhythm of the sentences, how you mix the little fragments and choppy bits with longer flowing passages. Did that come from that first book you got, or did you just absorb that through all, all the years between? Well, first of all, I want to say that it's it's hard for me not to put a gat in uh, in a sentence, but uh, I, so far I've held off. I, I would like I would like to put a gat somewhere, but I guess I'd have to that would have to be the uh, when I write in a different time period. Uh, well, yeah, I, I don't even. I mean, I, I do consciously think about um, about rhythm. To me, the write I read I read all the books out loud before I send them in, so mm-hmm. rhythm of the writing is is important to me. But um, I think it did come through osmosis through. Like I said, like you said, I read Chandler when I was very young, and I, I went off to Ross McDonald and um, a few more contemporary writers. I read some Hammett too, and and uh, so so from reading that, I think at an early age, um, and not really writing at that time, maybe just absorbing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's where it came from. But yeah, um, the rhythm of the writing is important to me, and and. Um, it's something I, it, it, there is some consciousness to it. I think, I mean, obviously you get into a flow, but there definitely is in terms of, um, some patterns and, and, and the rhythm there is, it is done consciously to a degree. Hopefully oh, when right. I'm rolling, it just kind of comes out, but yeah. yeah, it is. It's not a, it's not, it's definitely influenced by the, the, the greats I've read in the past and I'm not trying to emulate them, but I am trying to have, I do have my own voice and I'm trying to, Trying to be true to that, and and again the rhythm. Yeah, well, it it was first thing I before I even looked at all the 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 accolades you received about that very aspect. So I felt pretty proud of picking that up right away because it's not hard uh-huh. to do as as well as it is. Well, no, you you didn't put gat, but I, I, I'm going to give you super credit for using festus as a verb. <laughs> and, and I should explain to our, our listeners. <laughs> Yeah, our young listeners, they have no idea what that is. Festus was a character on Gunsmoke who walked with a limp. And late in the story, um, I, I, one other character says to another, well, Festus on in here, uh, or words to that effect, and uses as, as a verb. So I, I want to give you just absolute kudos for that. I'm glad somebody appreciates that. You know, when you write... When you write a sentence like that, you're thinking, ah, the editor may not like this, but I don't care. Um, it's the, the character who's saying that is a guy who's in his mid sixties. So that's appropriate for him. And, and in fact, he said it's, 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 um, um, Peter Stone, who's a, yeah. a character who comes throughout the various books. And, um, he's older than the, he says it to Rick, the protagonist who is about 37 at this point. And Rick actually in his mind says, you know, I don't know what he's saying more or less. I don't know what that means, but he went inside anyway. So it's a little homage. It's all homage to people my age mm-hmm. <laughs> who was writing the book and, and people who actually read the book. But of course, Rick wouldn't know. Gunsmoke, he'd have to be on uh, TV land quite a bit, I think, to get the fastest thing. Yeah, yeah, for, for younger folks. True. Well, it, let's talk a little bit about the book, book itself because 
there's something particularly rich about a book that has a big backstory. And this one has one that goes back to Rick's childhood more than a quarter century ago. Th- that and the fact that secrets are uncovered that have been buried for a long time, that really absorbs the reader because you want to find out what happens next. And um, you've done a masterful job of that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, well, the when I first when I wrote the first book, uh, yesterday's echo, I had this. There was this cloud that that I that uh, Rick had hanging over him, aside from mm-hmm. his own troubles and things he'd caused, was his father's um, fall from grace and his reputation that um, preceded Rick in La Jolla. And uh, Rick, for his own reasons, came back to his hometown after his own fall from grace up in Santa Barbara. But at the time when I was writing this, I, I didn't. I honestly didn't know what his father's fall from grace was. I knew I really didn't know well, a good guy or a bad guy. Just that he had a fall from grace, mm-hmm. and um, and it it carries a little into. The, I think it's more uh, uh, prevalent in the first book, but it carry. I mean, it's it's mentioned to some degree in every book because Rick bounces up against the um, La Jolla Police Department, which is fictional, mm-hmm. um, but. And, and, of course, his father's reputation hovers over that department. So there's always some of that. So, But I knew it's something I had to um, uh, tackle at some point. And um, so when I started writing this book, it, I didn't – once I began writing, I figured out what it was. But honestly, until I got to this point, I didn't know what it was. So mm-hmm. the revelations themselves are kind of exciting for me, too, because I had to figure out what it was and, and why it would have such a huge impact on his father, why – well, why the fall from grace um, mm-hmm. would make him spiral into an early death as an alcoholic. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of, of course, you're right first person. There's a lot, and that lets you show a lot of emotion in this. And Rick has plenty of emotion, plenty of emotional conflicts. And that's one of the, the, the things that draws people to is when there are stresses and people have to figure out, they have to make choices. And sometimes they're good ones, sometimes they're not so good ones. But I wanted to ask you this. Well, you told reviewers that you lost your own father while writing this book. And I'm wondering if that colored this at all. Yeah, it was actually, um, I lost him about uh, three months before, well, a couple of months before I started writing. But mm. I had it, it, I had the idea that this was going to be the book. I, I really don't plan very much, and um, which is, can cause problems. But for this book, I actually knew before I started, uh, even as I was going through final edits of the last book and that I was going to tackle the father situation in this book. So I already had that on, on the agenda, but yes, it did emotionally. It definitely, um, my father losing my father impacted the emotion of this book, uh, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, I was, I had my, uh, pre, uh, book launch a couple of weeks ago, mysterious galaxy in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And I, I stated that as a um, baby boomer, um, I had some difficulty uh, with my father as a camp. Sure, he had a lot more difficulty with me. Anyway, it's a difficult relationship. Um, and I think that's maybe a lot of baby boomers, ha- male at least, have that uh, mm-hmm. difficulty with their father. So there was that. and then, But there was also the fact that my father became a huge proponent of my writing. And I would, as I was writing a book, he would ask for early pages and I would discuss it with him. So there was missing that also. So there, there was a, uh, it was a difficult ride in some ways and, and because also the subject matter is very difficult, but, uh, in, in other ways, I think it's the most personally rewarding book that I've written so far, but it's tangled up. There's a lot of emotion in it. And it's as a, I, I my life, you said what I've done in the past. I manage a restaurant and I work in the, uh, I was in golf and I work in the, um, now sports licensing business. 
it's not really an exciting life. I can't draw back on my 20 years as a cop, as my uh, time as a lawyer, as my time as a fireman, a soldier. So I can't, when I'm trying to write a, a scene that has conflict in it or uh, things about being an ex-cop or what have you, I mean, I do my research and I have family members who are ex-cops, but or cops or ex-cops. But the one thing you can have for any writer in that situation is you have to make, the emotion can be true because we've all, especially someone my age, has had a lot of losses in their life and so, and highs and lows. So that emotion, no matter what's going on in the scene, whether if it's somebody being shot or had, or what have you, the emotion, the character's feeling can definitely be drawn from real life experience. And so that's, if you can put the true emotion in the book, no matter what research you've done with the other things you don't know, I think that hits home with the reader. It seemed to me, and I see if I'm, I'm right in this, that, that I pulled out two key uh, things that seemed to me that uh, did his father and himself and his father seemed to live by one sort of, of uh, motto, and he lives by a different one. Um, and I'm, I'm just putting my notes down here where sometimes you have to do what's right, even when the law says it's wrong, uh, is Rick's father's code. And his, I believe, is truth is the crucible by which all lives are judged. Without it, life and death hold no meaning. Yeah, the truth no matter what. There's a, there's a crossover there. Yeah, Rick, he's the, the truth is his crucible. And... Uh... It's, it's kind of ironic because his, the biggest loss in his life was the loss of his wife in the first book where, well, in the backstory to the first book, mm-hmm. all books, but where she was murdered and he was a cop in Santa Barbara and he was arrested for her murder and never tried, but uh, never exonerated, at least but never exonerated. And so that's, that's the truth that at some point I'm going to have to tackle because that's the truth he has never been able to um, unlock, um, uh, find, but he does live to a degree by his father's motto in that he definitely, he, it, it, they go together because mm-hmm. what's doing what's right for him is getting to the truth. Yeah. Getting to okay. the truth of the matter. And he does cut corners. I mean, I can't, I can't, I, I couldn't list the amount of times he's lied to the police, mm-hmm. uh, but to him, it's for the greater good. Right. Now, not everybody, we're, we're living in society as George Costanza might say, as he's waiting for a phone in the, uh, Chinese restaurant on Seinfeld, but <laughs> I actually said that in an airplane the other a couple of weeks ago. But anyway, so but, but if everybody lived like that, obviously we'd be in the, their civilization would be disarray. But you know, Rick, that's the way he lives. That's the way he's going to do it. So, um, and then sometimes he's dealing with corrupt cops, although not always. And it, it, mm-hmm. but for him, protecting his clients or himself comes first in, in relation to following the law. Mm-hmm. Which sort of goes with both, really. I mean, that is his truth to some degree, and that is his right. Sometimes you have to do what's right, even when the law says it's wrong. Now, his father, obviously, with the thing hanging over his father, to Rick, that he, when he digs deeper into this, and of course, the cloud that's always hung over his head, that has even different connotations. Like maybe his father's sense of right was completely wrong. Mm. Whether it was the 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 style, the the plots. The characters in it, you have some interesting side characters in Moira and in Peter uh, McFarlane and in Peter Stone that I think uh, really hold up throughout the, the series in this kind of shifting relationship he has with both of those. Peter Stone comes in the first book. He's a huge character in the first book. Moira comes about in the second book, and I needed her for a few scenes for some tension. Got me some tension when Rick decides <laughs> to take a case. Of course, he's. He's actually ending up knocking her off the case, but he didn't know. So there's some tension there. Then they end up working together. 
Um, and then for the third book, uh, Dark, Dark Fishers, um, I needed her for, she was only in a couple scenes and it was because Rick has had, has such a bad relationship with, um, the La Jolla police department that has, um, spread out to the other police departments just by his own reputation and his father's when he needs to get something where the cops can help him, he can't do that. So he has to go to Moira to have a license mm-hmm. plate run or something like that. Cause she can go to the police cause she has a good relationship. So I only needed her in the third book for a couple scenes, but I knew when I was writing this book that I was going to need her for a scene, one or two scenes. And so I put her in there and she said, I'm not leaving. <laughs> she became, she, beca- I, she was the, for me, the, the funnest character to write, most enjoyable character to write in this book. Um, because I got to see a lot more about her and her relationship with Rick. And she has kind of forced this friendship on him, this kind of uh, tug of war friendship where she's really salty to him, but she, she's almost in some ways, uh, like a big sister to him. Mm-hmm. This guy, cause she's, she, this guy is so, he doesn't have any friends. He, he had a few, he doesn't really have any left. He needs some, he needs some direction. He needs some rounding of the hard edges. And, uh, she just, takes him under his wing in some, in some ways, but she's a great, she's a much better detective than he, than he is. And he knows it. And so he goes <laughs> to her for that help. But, but w- what happens is that for me, she becomes the uh, conscience of the book actually, oh, um, yes. in some ways. And, um, so I, I, she's on the book I'm writing right now. She's in it. And, uh, it's always better in scenes where she's in it. And Peter Stone, I, I didn't intend, I didn't intend to bring him back for this book. And then I'm writing a scene, and this is how the, my horrible writing process works. I call it dropping anchors, where I'm writing a scene, maybe going somewhere, maybe not, and then a, a sentence will come to me, and or even a character, and I, oh, I'm going to drop him right there. I'm going to drop this Peter Stone in this scene, and I don't know where it's going to go, and I don't really care right now. And I may go back and figure it out. It may come to me later in the book, or I may have to go back and pull up anchors, which I do a lot on revision. Mm-hmm. So I go, oh, how about a Peter Stone in that car? Throw him in there, and it uh, it opens, as it can do, not always, but as it can do, it opened up things that I didn't even think about. My subconscious is a much better writer than I am. And the, <laughs> yeah. woman, who leads, the woman who leads my writer's group will, will say that. But um, So I, I try to be open to things like that, and so when Stone came in, it opened up this other, this, uh, other deeper... Um, uh, malevolence to some degrees, which is always good in the story. And then, uh, he, Rick and his, um, relationship actually evolves too, in a way that I enjoyed and, and found uh, interesting and maybe surprising. Yes. Yes. And certainly engrossing from a reader standpoint. Um, I just, I want to pop around because I took, took a lot of notes as we, as I read through this here. And, um, w- one of the things that, that echoed uh, your the noir thing is is uh, you say at one point he, Rick says I would take a Swedish masseuse an acupuncturist and a fifth of whiskey to relieve the knot my body had become or a different life <laughs> and I know that has as kind of a, a that a tough hard boiled detective feeling to it along with a line in, in uh, which he says. I grabbed the bag of ice I kept in the freezer for aches and beatings. So, <laughs> so I appreciate that. Well, the thing is, too, is that Rick, um, he, he was a cop in the backstory to the mm-hmm. the first book in the court. And he liked being a cop. He didn't last very long. I think it's about two and a half to three years. 
but he liked being a cop and he actually had, and this goes, this will antic, this will date me, uh, and probably cops of this, of, uh, younger generations. But there was a thing called the John Wayne syndrome. My brother-in-law was a police officer in LA for 33 years. His son is, gosh, my nephew has now been a cop for maybe 12 years up there. And this, his daughter's married cops. So, um, <laughs> It's funny how that works. But um, so, but the thing that my brother-in-law Gene um, had mentioned years and years ago, is, it's, it's called the John Wayne syndrome, where you're just really high on being a cop and you like having the power. And of course it wears off after time, hopefully. I mean, it's, it's, it has to for you to be a good police officer. But um, so Rick had that when he, I mean, he was still riding that when he was forced off the, um, asked to leave the police force. He enjoyed that, but he was um, like when the yesterday's echo opens up the first book, he's eight years removed from that. And because of what had happened in his being arrested for his wife's uh, murder, he had the police after him. He had the uh, press after him. It actually was a 48 hours, you know, so it was blown up nationwide. Everybody thought he was guilty and he got away with it. Um, so he didn't want anything to do with the police. He didn't want anything to do with the press. He didn't want anything to do with a bigger life than he used to live. He wanted to, he was a restaurant manager and that was only after a year of being back in the house. He's finally out in front of the house. And so he wants the quiet life. And as things unfold and he hasn't been, he hasn't been beaten up a long time. <laughs> so as the first book unfolds, he becomes drawn into a situation uh, with a woman, of course. And he, and when that's after that book's done, he feels like, well, this is, man, this is really what I should be doing to some degree. So he gets his private license, a private detective's license, and he goes back into that life of physicality and, de- and bumping up against bad people. And, and more often than not, he doesn't have a badge and he doesn't always have a gun. He is on the wrong end of a beating. And one other topic that occurs to me is the two words of the title, blood and truth, blood, truth, the title echo through everything that goes on in the book and and he says things like blood inescapable the secrets that it hid and he talked about how blood is so important and how, how truth is so important and i think it's brilliant to put both of those in the title thanks titles are hard and especially um with the first book was yesterday's echo it took me a long time to come to that title and it was two words so the uh, publisher wanted two word titles so that makes it even more difficult so all my titles have so far have been two words but yes and, and this book, the, the titles generally come to me organically, and it usually will be something that's uh, actual words in the book. And with this one, it came to me fairly early. Um, I didn't have it when I started. The book I'm, I, I have finishing now, I'm revising. I've already finished the first draft. I still don't have a title, which is mm. not that unusual. Uh, the first three were sort of like that, but the uh, Blood Truth uh, came to me pretty early. And yeah, it, it is... It is uh, it's Rick's life. Is he preordained to be his father's son by DNA mm-hmm. or can he escape that, um, his predestination or, um, perhaps not. Yeah. Well, and that question, uh, comes up all through uh, and, and, uh, without giving anything away, there's some really interesting answers that come out, uh, for the ending yeah. of, of this. Yeah. Again, there's so many things to talk about because this is such a... Oh, I know what I was going to mention to you. If you want to ever branch out for another serious character, Moira would make an interesting one. Yeah, she would. I, I love Moira. There's... Um, uh, I thought of that. As a matter of fact, I thought I'm under contract. I'm writing five and I'm under contract through six. 
and uh-huh. I tend to write Rick for as long as I can, but um, uh, I don't want to get too deeply into the nuts and bolts of publishing and how to try to make money. But um, yeah, I thought about perhaps in the next book, having it in Moira's point of view or switching back and forth, maybe her in a close third person and Rick in a first. Uh, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do. Um, but I thought about that because I do, I, I do like her so much and she's all, she, she, um, the book I'm writing now, I, I, there, she, Rick has again enlisted her to help him. And, uh, he says, she says something to him, you know, why, can't, why can't you ever ask for help when you're following, uh, you know, a middle-aged fat guy on a, on a, um, di- on a divorce, you know, uh, stakeout. And he says, uh, I don't need help for those. Um, <laughs> so I'd like to have her maybe be front and center and have her have to come to Rick for help, but I'm not sure exactly sure how I'll do that yet. That'd, that'd, be, do it. that'd be great. I'd love to see that one. I hate to almost say this because um, it doesn't always work out that way, but, but I really think it's the best book I've written. And, and uh, for me, it's an important book, but we'll see. Oh, well, I have to say that, and I'm, I'm going to curse you a little bit because now I'm going to have to go back and read the other three. So thank you for that. There goes my spare time. Uh, but, <laughs> but I do appreciate that. And I also, I also want to mention, if people are listening and, and they, they would like to get an autographed copy of this, VJ Books would be happy to provide one for them. They're yeah, wonderful. fantastic. Fun. I love VJ Books. They're great. Yeah, great deal indeed. When the number five comes out, will you get a commitment from you to come back and talk about that one with us? I'd love to. I, I would love to. appreciate the... Uh, the time and the support and uh, the knowledge. All right. Our guest today has been Matt Coyle. His latest superb book is called Blood Truth. Please uh, grab a copy right away. Thanks so much for spending that much time with us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Modern Sign Books. Make sure to follow and comment on who you would like to hear next. Feel free to check out our other author interviews. And visit vjbooks.com to pick up signed copies of all of your favorite books.